In the fight to stop the embers of evil, there's no hero more willing to go the distance. No hero more willing to carry his flammable items to safe storage than Captain Combustibles. Uh, I was just storing my flammable outdoor items 10 meters from my house. Simple fire smart stuff, honestly. Amazing, Captain Combustibles. Another everyday hero doing everyday chores to protect his home from wildfire. For more FireSmart tasks that could save your home, visit FireSmartBC.ca. Welcome to the Get FireSmart podcast, a place to listen, learn, and hear from FireSmart leaders to understand how to implement FireSmart strategies and activities to protect your home, neighborhood, and community from the threat of wildfire. On the show, we interview FireSmart leaders from across the world to share stories that provide practical tips and lessons to get FireSmart. From community leaders to firefighting professionals to passionate homeowners, we dive into the stories of FireSmart and how you, our listeners, can learn the practical steps you can take to begin your FireSmart journey. And now, it's time to get FireSmart. All right, we are back with the Get FireSmart podcast, and today we're speaking with Mike McCulley from the BC Wildfire Service. Mike is a senior officer of research and innovation with the BC Wildfire Service. Mike's had a pretty amazing career doing a lot of different things, focused on communications, information officer liaison, and in his current role, focused on research and innovation. In our conversation with Mike, we focused on data and people, two things that people often don't think about when considering wildfire. Throughout our conversation, Mike speaks about stories of impact that stood out to him throughout his career, as well as lessons learned and the importance of fire smart and wildfire resiliency. This is a great conversation with someone that's spent a lot of his career on the front lines of wildfire and really connecting with people. I'm excited for this conversation. Let's dive in. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited for this call. We were just doing some pre-work before we kind of started to hit record. So this conversation is going to be an important one. And I think it'll be a, a, a passionate, a personal one for you as well, but really excited to have you on the show. For our listeners, where are you calling in from today? So I'm calling in from Port Hardy, which is on the north tip of Vancouver Island. It's a small town. Um, pretty lucky to live here. This is the traditional territory of the Kwagyu people. Uh, I'm very humbled to to live and work here, raise my family here. I've been here for about oh, 28 years, Andrew. My job is actually based out of Victoria, but I have this great luxury of living and working remotely here in Port Hardy. Amazing, Mike. So your title is pretty special. Senior Officer of Research and Innovation for Beast Wildfire Service. There's probably a lot we can unpack there. Tell us a bit about yourself, your background, how long you've been with Beast Welfare Service, how long you've been doing this work. Really curious to hear a bit about your background. I know we could spend the whole hour here, but maybe give our listeners just a high overview of, of who Mike is and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, that's such a great question. A bit of a journey here for me today. But, uh, you know, I grew up in Manitoba. I grew up on a small cow farm just north of Winnipeg. Um, I had a passion for the outdoors and I knew that that's something I wanted to do. So, you know, through time, I, I ended up going to school in Alberta and eventually applying for a job with the uh, BC Forest Service at the time. Um, I interviewed over the phone. I'd never really been to Vancouver Island at all. Uh, my partner, uh, my wife, we both uh, share the same passions and the same education. So by hook or crook, we ended up here in Port Hardy working for the BC Forest Service, both of us. And through time, um, you know, I found a real passion in wildfire and I started, you know, going out on deployments and working for wildfire uh, just around the turn of the millennium. So around 2000, I guess, you know, 23 years ago now. 
and doing that pretty consistently for the last several decades and eventually evolved into my full-time permanent role with the BC Welfare Service as the uh, Research Innovation Senior Officer. Amazing. And we're going to dive into a bit of your role as a liaison officer and instant information officer because I think there's some, some powerful stories there. But before we do that, can you share a little about your role now as kind of Senior Officer of the Research Innovation portion of what you do? Yeah, it's a super great job. I, I work with a team of really fantastic people. Um, there's four or five of us on the team right now. Our job is to uh, try to modernize the business of wildland firefighting within British Columbia in an effort to you know, better support taxpayers and citizens and to help our crews be our crews and our command staff and, and all our staff, frankly, to be state-of-the-art leading the way in wildfire management. That's all aspects of it, not just aggression. We're talking about the four pillars here of uh, prevention, preparedness, uh, response, and recovery. That's really important. Um, so for our crew, we deal with everything from uh, new equipment technology for our crews, right up to uh, using AI to better predict fire growth and behavior. Um, we dabble a lot in social science, which I'm obviously keen on, you know, based on my other role as an information officer and a liaison. Uh, so we're always looking at, you know, how better can we communicate with the public? And of course, we spend a fair bit of time looking at pure fire science. Pretty broad theme for us, but I'm really blessed to have a great team. Uh, and and we support uh, all the programs within the BC Welfare Services. We do that job. Wow. I feel like we could do a whole podcast just on that. Just the branches of how innovation is being brought to wildfire. I think we've had a lot of guests on the show, you know, some speaking about the new technologies, the process, how AI there's a ton there for people just kind of listening in and they probably want me to talk all about that portion of your background. Maybe share a little bit about some of the trends and insights, technologies. What are people public-wise that may not be aware of all the different tools and techniques? What are some interesting facts? What are some interesting programs that are kind of on your team's plate at the moment? That's a really good question, Andrew. I think, you know, the, the first one that comes to mind obviously is drones or RPAS. There's a whole new world out there of RPAS that we're looking at integrating into our systems. Um, so that's one, you know, we're starting to use our pass or drones in ways that we've never used them before. We have to be really careful about this though, because integrating that type of aircraft into our own airspace during a wildfire is tricky, but we're looking at it and trying to improve our methods there. You know, using artificial intelligence is big. There's so much that you can do with that. And we're really trying to ramp up our tools that we have already, such as fire growth modeling and weather forecasting. You know, taking what we know and using algorithms to help us learn and understand you know, where to prioritize our resources. But I think one that the public might be really interested in would be, you know, the work we do around fuel treatment efficacy is the world used for it. So, you know, people are pretty familiar with fire smarting around their community and their home. There's a lot of effort and frankly, a lot of money and resources that go into that. So what my team does is we will work with researchers in academia to look at those treatments that already occur around communities, uh, see if they work, see if they're providing good value and, you know, use peer research, including mathematical research to determine, you know, if, if what we're doing is, is effective and we're not doing that just in BC, we're sharing those learnings, you know, across the whole country and nation. We talk regularly with our partners in Australia, California, and from coast to coast in Canada. So that's just a small snippet of it. Uh, I think for my team, the piece that is most dear to us personally be a lot of the health-related research that we're working on. You know, my coworkers and our crews are, are clearly being impacted, as the public is, from smoke, from wildfire, fatigue, uh, you know, mental duress, other challenges. So my team is really partnered up with uh, some experts in that area. We're looking at how we can better protect them from long-term cancer, reduce their exposure, and just increase their total worker health. 
uh, that's a big profile for for our research team right now. Wow. I appreciate the kind of high level overview. You know, it's high because if we dive deep into each one, that is a separate podcast, which, you know, I'm, I'm putting a note here on my piece of paper. We should do that because I think there's happy to do that. Yeah. No much reason. But I think it's encouraging. I think every episode we've had, it's one thing that's kind of dawned on me is fires changing, fuel types are changing, you have climate change, you have all these different elements where, you know, and even for us as a society, like the data points and culture, it's we're getting more and more data points. So now you can actually look at this data, you can review it, you can kind of bring it to the field. So I find that really fascinating. I'm sure a lot of our listeners do too. You mentioned the role FireSmart plays in some of that innovation piece, but I want to go back to your earlier point, talk about the four pillars, the prevention. You know, this is the Get FireSmart podcast. FireSmart is a critical part of, you know, the public taking that first step, taking action. Where does FireSmart kind of play in that, in your team's role? You know, you being an advocate for it, maybe speak to the importance of FireSmart and the importance of kind of those initial steps and in preparing in advance of wildfire. Anything you can speak to about your work and the connection to FireSmart? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we definitely work with the FireSmart teams, uh, you know, to sort of make sure that our researchers are integrated with those that have the knowledge. But, you know, if you're just talking generally about how FireSmart looks and feels to me as a guy who's been doing this for, for you know, a little bit of time now, I would say that, you know, when I first started going out on large fires over 20 years ago, the impacts that we saw at that time were not quite as significant as as we're seeing now. And, and those are the things that you talked about, Andrew, with climate change new fires coming at us we're seeing a really increased fire intensity longer fire seasons this is not news to anybody but you know where that puts me is in a spot where if i was talking to the public or talking to community they really need to pay close attention to this and take some ownership themselves of fire smarting one of the things that i've seen over time is that when you're out on a large fire and part of the community has been impacted sadly by fire maybe structures are lost you know it drives everybody else into a position of Holy smokes, I better run around and get some fire smarting on the go here right now. And the best advice I would give to people in that regard, and our research proves this, is make those decisions when you're not under duress. Don't be trying to fire smart your property when fire smart is coming at you very quickly. You know, people need to own this. They need to understand the new regime and be way more prepared. And that includes taking a really good holistic look at the principles of fire smart and applying them to your property, your acreage, your house, whatever that may be. Um, while you can and not while you're, you know, thinking about this later. Mm. It's a good tie-in. I think when you talked about some of your earlier kind of projects as a team, you have AI, you have technology of drones, all these really technical aspects of wildfire resiliency, which are really critical and important. It's where we're trending. And then you look at fire smart, some of those first steps as, you know, removing vegetation, removing debris, you know, taking some of those, you have very simple activities that have a huge impact. And then obviously you have very technical. So I think it's a very unique parallel where both are great, both are needed. Um, but I think it's interesting for you and your team as you spend every day asking these tough questions that you're able to say with pretty high conviction, fire smart works. Well, absolutely it does, right? I mean, one of the luxuries I have is the team that I work with in the research and innovation world. All of my team come from a fire crew. They've all been on a crew and they've been out and they've seen the same impacts as me. So when we are you know, looking at our research or trying to figure out how can we improve fire smarting, for example. Um, you know, we're speaking from a place of, of knowledge. A lot of us also live in small communities. My team is spread out over the whole province. And so it gives us a really strong connection to the nations and the communities that are usually most affected by wildfire, um, which is, you know, often the rural parts of British Columbia and beyond. Look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's a homeowner. Scaling her ladder of truth to remove flammable debris lurking in her home's gutter. She's the gutter guardian. Oh, uh, 
I'm just cleaning leaves from the gutter to be more fire smart. No big deal. And modest, too. Way to go, Gutter Guardian. Another everyday hero doing everyday chores to protect her home from wildfire. For more Fire Smart tasks that could save your home, visit firesmartbc.ca. Okay, so we talked a bit about your current role, um, which I'm, you know, we will do a separate podcast on all those topics. So if our listeners are getting a little bit nervous that we're moving too fast, uh, you know, whether you've committed or not, I think we'd love to have you back to talk about all that stuff. But I think a big part of your career... Um, which plays a big part of your work today, um, but also personally for you, the impact for yourself is your time as kind of a liaison officer, as an incident information officer. So maybe share a little bit about that part of your work experience. And then we've got a lot of questions to kind of walk through regarding the personal side of wildfire. Yeah. You know, I'm really lucky to have this job. I want to start by saying that to be able to go into a community as an information officer liaison isn't something I take lightly. So I'll just explain a little bit about what that looks like, first of all, and then maybe how I got there. Um, But when we're out on large project fires or large fires that you would be reading about in the news, say fires of note, fires that are big and bad and and threatening, you know, lots of resources, the BC Wildfire Service will send in a a dedicated incident management team to run that fire. That's when they're, we know they're going to be long, we know they're going to be big, and likely there's already been, you know, possibly impacts to communities and structures. So within the incident management team, um, you know, there'll be an information officer and or a liaison officer. Often we're doing both roles, but you know, that person's job is to disseminate information from and among the team itself across our own agency. It can be really tricky to talk to each other during the busy season, but more importantly, it's to provide really good information on the fire to those that are impacted. So we'll work with the local government. You'll often see the info officer in doing media briefings in conjunction with the local nation or the local government. Um, we'll also try to ensure that we're engaging nations in a way that they that is meaningful for them. In other words, how do you want to be uh, part of our fire as a co-governor? Um, and then just spending real time talking to people that are severely impacted. And I can tell you that's changed a lot over the years. You know, that can vary from just really specific individual calls with homeowners that are being forced to evacuate and they're not sure what to do and where to go to broader communications, you know, again, through the media and through other avenues. So that's a little bit about the role. Uh, now, how I got started is uh, kind of interesting. I really have no formal background or training in media or, you know, I did a little bit of public speaking when I was a young man in a 4-H club. But beyond that, it was just simply my passion to help help people in community and to also be part of that command team. Very rewarding to go into that, you know, situation with my coworkers and over a short period of a few weeks, form a really strong bond and connection to each other where we're, we're truly working through the greater good of supporting British Columbians and taxpayers and industry. The first time I worked as an information officer was kind of a funny story. I was working on a fire in, I was around Salmon Arm, I think, somewhere around the turn of the millennium again. And uh, there was a lot of media around. There had been some structures lost. But I was working with a team from Saskatchewan, and they weren't really familiar with BC. I was pretty new myself. I was actually assigned the fire as a, as a safety officer, but... We started having media roll into our command post and uh, the incident commander from Saskatchewan was a great guy, but he quickly punted me out the door and said, look, you're from British Columbia, you go talk to them. And so I, I did a couple interviews unbeknownst to the powers that be within the province. And, um, you know, it, 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 I, I watched them and I saw what they did with them and I could see the public looking at them and listening very closely to my words. So I learned that, you know, this, these were trivial things and these weren't things that is just uh, a person talking about a story. This is things that people are desperately needing to hear. 
and mm. and they you know my words turned out to be really important so i never take that lightly i always try to make sure i'm accurate and respectful uh, in my communication but that's a little bit about what we do kind of how i got started and amazing i like that story no way to learn than just getting pushed into the thick of it so yeah and, and just to start too i think we're recording on video so i get to see uh your emotion your excitement your passion so for our listeners too like it's exciting to see someone like yourself, Mike, that's built a career serving others and just to say thank you for the passion that you brought to that role. So I just want to mention that as well. It's exciting for, for me to see and I know you've spent a lot of time and done a lot of great work. Um, on the note of, you know, the role, you know, it is a difficult role and you're often working with people in the hardest situations where there's high stress, there's unknowns. In light of that, can you tell us just a bit about the human side of kind of wildfire resiliency and maybe some stories or just... How do you do that role? How do you take information and even when you may not have all the facts and like connect with people on a human level? Well, you certainly have to have uh, some understanding of what people are going through. And I mean, there's no secret out there that not everybody loves the work that BC Welfare Service does. Uh, there's lots that do and lots that don't. But, you know, I'm really, really proud of what we do as a team. I, I don't take the professional firefighter uh, denomination lightly. So w- when you're out there, and I'll talk a little bit about some of the stories that I've seen and people that have impacted me over my time. But another piece that really, really resonates me and and I work with other information officers and I'm fairly certain we share the same view is, you know, representing our fire crews out of the line. Um, these are professional men and women doing really important work. They're highly trained and highly skilled. And so for me, if I'm the person speaking about their work, I, I'm very humbled by what they do and I have to make sure that I get that right. There's nothing worse than having a fire crew person come up to you at the end of the day and say, hey, McCulley, I watched your video this week at the local government's press release and you use the wrong terminology for the work I'm doing. There's nothing worse than that. We have to make sure we're, you know, we're speaking accurately about what they're doing. And so it drives us to a good place. It drives us to be very fluent in the business. We have to understand all portions of wildfire and that's important. So, you know, maybe turn the coin to the second part of your question there. When we get on a call or we get in a forum, a public meeting, for example, in a community, or a one-on-one conversation with somebody who's, you know, really badly impacted. I think, you know, you have to have some compassion, certainly. You have to be a human being. These are these are people mm-hmm. that are hurting. Uh, they're not just a name or a number. They're not just another phone call that you have to return in a day. It's somebody that desperately needs help and they need to talk to you. And so if you can just kind of calm down the pace of the day, do some good listening, try to help them understand what's really going on around them and provide them education on the supports that are available, you know, I've got all the time in the world for people like that, even on the busiest day out on the fire line. Um, I think of a story of a, a fellow who we were working with, oh, probably around 2015, I guess, sort of mid-central British Columbia. And we had a fire that, uh, you know, impacted a community badly. We had large tracts of land and properties under evac orders and alert. And we had a we had a fellow there who just couldn't get his head around leaving his beautiful hall and his beautiful property. Um, so I was asked to go in and speak with him and we sat down, I, I took somebody from the office of the fire commissioner with me and we sat down and we had a great listen to this fellow. And he basically said to me, you know, Mike, I built this house with everything I have. My heart, soul, all of my spirit is here. And if my home burns down, I want to burn down with it. I'm mm-hmm. not prepared. I'm ready to stay on planet earth if my home's gone. So he said, for me, I think if fire comes here, I'm going to take my chances and go down in the basement and just hope I make it. And if I don't, I'm going to be at peace with that. Wow. 
Yeah. Wow. Right. So pretty hard conversation to sort of engage in and, and figure out where to navigate next. And, you know, there's no way I can put myself in that person's shoes. I can't say to him, I know how you're feeling because I don't. So I have to be very careful about that. Um, but in the end, we just talked. We had a great conversation about life and children and family and what other things are important. And by the end of the call, we were able to convince the guy that, you know what, it might be your heart and soul, but that will continue as you go forward. Even if you don't, if, if you lose your hold, it's it's going to be okay. You know, there's green grass on the other side and things will get better. And in the end, he did leave his home and grac- graciously, uh, his home was not lost to the wildfire. Wow. That is a powerful story. I think it's a story that probably a lot of listeners, myself included, wouldn't associate with the work of BC Wildfire Service, the time to sit down, have that dialogue, be transparent, like what you said, <clears throat> be honest, saying, I don't know what you're going through, but it's an important story to hear. So thanks for sharing that. Any other stories? It's hard to kind of match that, but any other stories that stick out to you from your career of just times where you've gone out to engage the public and, 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 and whatnot? Yeah, of course. And I'm going to share some of these after with you really humbly. I know that all of my coworkers that have done this work, they'll be listening. Some of them will be, and they've got similar stories. So I certainly don't want to, you know, come across as a guy who's done more of this than others, because it's not true. We've all got these things that we, we've talked about and dealt with, and we, we share them with each other and we learn from these experiences. I guess the other one was uh, a fire I was working on in, um, I was in the southern part of BC, very close to the US border, very hot and dry, big drought. This was five or six years ago now. And I was going around in a community where half of the valley had been lost to wildfire, but the other half was still there. It was a fairly rural area, lots of farms and ranches. And I went into one property. Again, I had somebody with the Office of the Fire Commissioner with me, a little bit more of an expert on fire smart than I am. And we were going kind of around talking to folks about things. And we ended up at one property and the person was, you know, in the front yard, very upset. Um, and they had a faller with them, chainsaw ready to go. And they were looking at cutting down a couple of trees in front of their house. And, you know, again, making a bit of an emotional decision. I'm not going to pass judgment on whether that was a good one or a bad one from a fire smart perspective, but you could see them struggling and they were almost panicking. And, um, you know, we went and talked to them a little bit about fire smart and, Again, a good reason why you shouldn't probably wait till the last minute to make these decisions. You could see fire coming across the way. It was yeah. right there on their doorstep. But we had some intel and we knew that it probably wasn't going to be too bad for the property. So we talked to them for a little while um, and and they were okay. But then I went to see the neighbor who had a very large uh, poultry operation and you know they weren't in good spirits at all. They were quite upset. Uh, they had lost their poultry barn, including most of their animals to fire which is always tricky. Um, so, you know, when you go into a situation like that, how do you even start to talk to somebody who's, you know, lost everything? Um, a lot of listening, not a lot of talking on my part. Um, they were quite upset and we, we, we listened, we told them we were sorry. We offered them whatever advice we could. And then I went away and I never thought about it for a couple of years, but, um, maybe two years ago I was in a meeting and this young lady came up to me and, uh, we were at a tech conference actually looking at some innovation and, she came up to me and said, Hey, I remember you. You probably don't remember me, but um, I was on this poultry farm that burned down. And I remember my dad was very upset with you one day, Mike, and really angry with the BC Welfare Service because we had lost everything. But uh, I wanted to assure you that, you know, having you visit us that day and having a presence from Wildfire Stop out even after things had gone bad. So you're starting to get into that recovery phase uh, meant a lot. And although my dad was angry, he was very grateful, and so am I for kind of having you folks there and being able to talk to us. So, 
you know, that's one story of many connections that we've made over time. Um, I'll share another one with you quickly, Andrew. I was working in Williams Lake in 2017, which at the time was our worst fire season in history. And we had a, we had a bit of a fire smart booth and an info booth going down at the local fair. And I was approached by a couple uh, ladies and they told me they were from uh, the Soda Creek First Nation. And they said, we don't know what's going on. Nobody's talking to us. We're really not sure what's happening with the fire and we don't know where we fit in. So that was an easy discussion for me. I was able to, you know, talk to them as a government to government conversation, say, look, you need to be more involved with what we're doing. And we brought them into the fire center. We had them engage directly with our operational staff and our managers. And they were able to start, you know, having good discussions about, about how to go forward. You know, I'm not convinced everything went completely smooth with the nation beyond that, but I do know that we started going to public meetings on site working with the nation, listening to them closely. And one of the challenges that they had with fire was um, the impacts on the land, which I think people don't always consider. Uh, for us, we come in and we go, um, but for these people that are there forever, they had lost their foraging. Uh, they were concerned about, you know, not being able to harvest mushrooms the next year. And the drought had also caused them to have no food fish. I did have no idea uh, how big an impact that was on a nation like that. And these things were all driven by drought, climate change, and wildfire. So, you know, it shook me. And and to go in there and see that although the fire's not coming right into your nation, you are going to struggle with the impacts of the fire for a very long time. That that really resonated with me and allowed me to go back and help to talk to other parts of our government that would you know bring in those resources to help out. Do you hear that? Approaching faster than a speeding weed whacker. More powerful than a ride on mower. Holding the flames of evil at bay by cutting them off at the grassroots. That's right. It's Mower Man. Huh? Oh, I'm just cutting my lawn to be more fire smart. Nothing special. Incredible. All in a day's work for Mower Man. Another everyday hero doing everyday chores to protect his home from wildfire. For more fire smart tasks that could save your home, visit firesmartbc.ca. Yeah, I can imagine with someone with, with your tenure and career, there's probably many, many stories, but I think those are powerful ones just to give our listeners some perspective in the role and, and what's required and having those hard conversations, not easy conversations. And I think it's it's really powerful to hear those words. And even you talked about the recovery piece and you're at a tech conference and you get those touch points and that's powerful just to hear that and to know the impact that you have. And I think for those listening um, today, you know, you mentioned this point earlier you know, Mike, about, you know, the fire smart principles and you're making these difficult decisions, whether it's looking at a tree near your home and you see fire kind of crest, you know, coming in, you look at kind of the stressful urgency and it's, you know, it's easy to say it now on this podcast and it's, you know, late March, but taking the time to do this, the things that are needed now in advance of those summers. And I think, you know, maybe speak to that one more time of just how critically you see fire smart principles and actions now prior to fire seasons that, hey, taking these steps little by little, you know, bite by bite at this point in time brings so much advantages when there's kind of high wildfire risk, but also mental, you know, stress, all those elements just allowing you to say, hey, I, I did some of these key tasks before. I, I, did, I did the work. You know, it's it's hard to, to not look back, but any comments there on just the fire smart principles and how you've seen fire smart being used by communities during wildfires? Yeah, I think that's a really good question that you raise. I mean, I know that um, when we have a fire and we're looking at properties that are threatened, our crews will work as hard as they can to try to fire smart in a hurry, try to protect the property. 
Um, they might be burning off around a house. They might be moving firewood away. They're doing assessments constantly and they're looking at that stuff, but it's not the, it's not the be all and end all. Can you imagine if our crews can show up to a fire and that work's already done and now they can go fight the fire and do, do that work to keep the fire, not on your doorstep, but a little ways off. You know, I just wanted to put that in context for people when our crews are doing that, it's probably because you haven't. And so it, yeah. um, it frees us up to do more meaningful, sorry, not more meaningful work, but you know, more suppression related directly to the fire kind of work. Over time, when I first started doing this job, going into a community, and if there was a home loss, that was a big deal. Now, because of the type of fire we're seeing, the intensity, the size, the, the heat bubble, the weather, the wind, all of these things that the world knows so well about, it is unfortunately not uncommon to have more structures lost in BC year after year. So when I first started, I would go into these communities and I would take pictures of homes that were burnt down. And I've got a lot of them on my, on my B-roll here. I've got them on my computer. And then, you know, around 2018, it, it, it just got to me a little bit. I'm like, why do I have all these photos of burnt homes? Um, I started taking pictures of the buildings that stayed and looking at the wine. And it's amazing to, to stand in comparison from one property to the next. And I have so many vivid memories of this where you're in an area where five homes are gone and one's still there. Why is it still there? Well, guess why it's still there? They took a little time and they did the, the principles of fire smarting. Um, you can see the social dynamic of that in a neighborhood. Others will be angry, upset. Your home stayed and mine didn't. Why? What happened? Why me? Um, you know, the really, the reason to look there is at yourself. If you took the time that the neighbor did to do some fire smarting, it's not going to work in every case. We know this, but you know, that, that to me is something very special and important. So having communities work together on these things so that there's not one sticking out like a sore thumb at the end, it, it, it does make a difference. And I've seen it live, you know, with my own eyes. Um, I've been in communities where every home is gone, but three, and you look at these three and there's, you can just tell that they put time and effort into fire smarting. And we've seen that not only in communities, but in rural areas as well, where entire properties are gone. But hey, that one was built with fire smart principles. And guess what? It's still there. And mm -hmm. so imagine the life after that, you can go back into your home compared to the people who've lost everything. That's powerful. We, we speak about the importance of fire smart, but hearing that context is, is powerful and a great illustration of the importance of it. And I think it holds a little bit more weight when you have a title of senior officer of research and innovation and you're looking at data, you're looking at techniques, you're someone that strikes me as you, you look at historicals, you look at data points. So it's, it's, it's great to hear that. Switching gears a little bit, um, but also on the topic of kind of your work with working with people and families. Uh, I have here in our notes that you had an experience going to California to help fight wildfires. And I think most people listening probably remember seeing it in the news and I'm not sure when you went, but California has always been you know, top the news of just wildfire severity and the impact it has. So any insights or, or stories that you want to share just from your experience in California? Yeah, for sure. That was quite an interesting time for me. So I'll, I'll, I'll paint a little bit of a picture first, Andrew. We have uh, the PC Wildfire Service obviously leans very heavily on our partnerships. And one of our really strong partners is Cal Fire and the state of California. Um, of course, we have others within Canada, um, but we do work very closely with them. And one of those reasons is related to climate change and resiliency and fire regime. You know, we know California is dealing with massive drought conditions because of climate change. And so, you know, you kind of look at them as being a little bit ahead of us in terms of how they have to manage these issues. So for me to go down there, um, you know, as the research and innovation officer, 
was certainly interesting. I was looking at what they were doing, how they're doing it, what can we learn from them and bring them back. But I, I didn't go down there in a research role. I was there as what's called an agency representative. So I'm down there representing our crews that are embedded into this large foul in California. And I went down there, Andrew, it was 2020. So it was the fall of uh, September. Um, COVID was booming at the time. Uh, vaccines weren't a thing quite yet. And so it was a really uh, interesting time to be deployed out of country. We just come off of a period where most people were still really locked down, including myself. I was at home in Port Hardy and I got the call to ask if I was willing to, you know, take about 80 fire crew down to California and rendezvous with another roughly 140 crew that we've already had in place there. Uh, so I, I didn't. Um, we traveled down, we drove down. It was the only way we could get there. All the borders were closed for flying. So that was our option. And we needed vehicles when we got there. So off we went. I ended up in a, in a village called Quincy, California which is in the Plymouth National Forest. And it's sort of uh, just west of Reno by a couple of hours. So we're kind of in that northwest corner of California. It's a forest industry type of an area. Steep country, big trees, lots of logging. Not a lot different than British Columbia, just different species and a little different weather. Mm. Um, but when we got down there, we were working. So we were capped in our own bubble. This is a very large incident from a California perspective. There was roughly 2,500 firefighters working on this fire. Um, um you know, as well as several hundred command staff, which is a lot. That's, that's big. We wouldn't see that in British Columbia, not to that extent. The fire was about 130,000 hectares. So a large size fire, big for California at the time, but it was directly adjacent to uh, a fire from previous year, uh, which burnt through a community called Paradise. And I'm sure everybody's familiar with that. There's lots of media and news stories on it. You can go and listen to the people from Paradise who were impacted. So we're working in an area where Fire has been challenging for communities. On this particular fire, by the time we got there, there had already been 16 fatalities. There have been over 2,400 structures lost. And that was different level for me. You know, we've dealt with things similar before, but not to that extent. If you think of California, there's people everywhere down there. And, you know, the fire impacted them. And so there was a lot of loss going on. One of the losses that did happen was with the crew that was actually responsible for that part of the forest. So, we were working with a hotshot crew called the Feather River Hotshot Crew. And, uh, you know, hotshot crews are um, sort of the cream of the cream of firefighting crews in the States. They work for the U.S. Forest Service, and they were on our fire, and it was in their very backyard. In fact, our crew spent a lot of time working along the Feather River drainage itself. But one of the things that had happened earlier on this fire was the Feather River Hotshot Crew had lost their whole base, their ranger station, Basically, the place where they call home and work out of every day have been burnt within the fire. Yet there they were still fighting the same fire that took their, you know, took their base away from them. Didn't flinch, super professional, kept on going every day right into fall. So, you know, being down there on that fire was extremely challenging from a pandemic perspective. We had to manage our crews completely different. We had to manage, you know, how we interacted with the California staff in quite a different way. But I think the thing that most stands out for me was you know, just seeing the impact on communities to drive through that fire area and see 2,400 homes on to, to watch them, you know, looking in burnt out areas for human remains, that's something different. And so very grateful to be here in British Columbia. I'm glad we uh, take the approach we do. Our crews come first, our people come first, and we'll always, you know, do what we can to support British Columbians, but not at the risk of, of lives and property. Wow. Powerful story. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard a bit about 
the impact wildfires have had in California. But hearing from you on the front line and, you know, you have the pandemic, you've got logistical challenge and you have an emotional piece to that fire too. You brought up a really good point, which can probably lean toward closing on our conversation today. But <clears throat> you talked about the makeup of the people of the Beast Wildfire Service, the firefighters in general, just the character and the drive and the passion. I've witnessed it. I've seen it in action. It's pretty powerful, but I think it probably can't be spoken of enough. Maybe just speak to your experience in working with Beast Wildfire Service and the crews, the front line. Just talk about the people that that make up the Beast Wildfire Service and, and, and the industry itself. I think it's probably, you have a unique perspective to that. When it comes to representing the BC Wildfire Service, I've talked a little bit about this today, Andrew, but I can't tell you how humbling it is for me to be out there thinking of all the people working in the background on on trying to you know put the fire out at the imminent time and then all the front and back and the, the work that goes into that. I'll speak from my own experience. I leave my family every year pretty much for the whole summer. I've got a 17-year-old daughter. Um, she reminds me pretty regularly that I've rarely been home on her birthday. And we're good. We're tight. But, you know, these are the things that I think when the public is really uh, not happy with what's going on or they're not keen on what's happening on their fire, please call your information officer. Call whoever is me doing that job out there. Let us try to talk to you and help you understand because I can assure you that these folks, men and women out on the line every day in the command staff, in the fire center, they are amazing. They take their work very seriously. Uh, they work extremely hard. It's not uncommon for them to be putting 16-hour days out in the heat and the dirt, 40-plus degrees. Um, their biggest task then is just trying to stay healthy, keep hydrated, keep safe. Uh, they do that for days on end, um, often weeks at a time. They sleep in tents. They line up for food. They line up for a shower, and they rarely complain. And to me, that's amazingly motivating to be able to go in front of a camera and speak about the work that my coworkers are doing or go talk to an affected community, it's extremely emotional for me. I don't take it lightly and it inspires me to, you know, be factual, but to also stand for people. If you're somebody out there that does really like what's happening, again, please reach out and we're happy to talk to you. And you have every right not to be happy or sort of love government. You know, nobody's asking you to do that, but I would ask you to take a pause though, before you fire out the criticism of our people, whether it's if you bump into them at a gas pump or if you bump into them, you know, on the streets or you decide to get into our social media and, and wade in with your opinion, just think about the folks that are out there. They're just like, just like everybody else, trying to work hard, do their job, extremely proud, extremely professional. I can't uh, tell you again how humbling it is to be able to work side by side with them for all of these years, um, learn from them, and just be there uh, as part of that team. It's an amazing feeling. And there's nothing else like it. There's We talk about this amongst ourselves, Andrew. It's really hard to describe unless you've been there. The brotherhood and sisterhood is is strong, but there's a reason for it. We're, we're united in a common goal, and that's to do our best to protect uh, British Columbia. Amazing. Yeah, it is. It's personal work. It's professional work, but it's also personal. Like you said, you're going to communities and you're kind of on the front lines of what means so much to everyone. And so... I think it's can't be said enough, just the character of the people that work all across Beast Wildfire Service. So it's it's great getting your perspective from it, from your tenure and also how many fires that you've seen. So yeah, appreciate you sharing that perspective. Yeah, maybe I'll close that part off with one other little piece. And this is again fairly personal for me, but you know, and when I'm traveling from my own community to another community, um, to go to go work on a wildfire, I think of my own community. I have had a fire in my community, and it's a small town. There's about 4,000 of us here um, where we had to evacuate, and, and we actually had a fatality. And 
We had some really crazy things going on that week. So anytime I'm out there, it's not just a job for me. I'm truly thinking of my own community first and the experience that I've had there and how I can put myself in the shoes of others that are so badly impacted. But when I leave those communities, when I'm done my deployment, I'm driving home, you know, it's emotional tie for me for sure. I often cry. Uh, I'm often, you know, thinking of every person I met, every impacted human that I've talked to, those stories stick with me for my whole life. They'll never leave me. And as, as I'm driving out of the community, I also think of my, you know, coworkers in the wildfire service and at, at, at the nations trying to run their emergency programs. I think of the fact that they're still there and they're going to be there for a while. And, and I hope that they, you know, think of what just happened and think of how they can be more resilient going forward, which includes fire smarting and other things, but make no mistake, leaving isn't easy. Um, yes, I get to come home and see my family, which is always great, but leaving communities that are impacted is never easy for us. We don't just rush out and be glad to get days off. It sticks with us forever. Yeah. I, uh, can only imagine. Well, I think what a, what a way to close. I mean, we started the conversation with your background on data, AI research, and we ended with the importance of people, relationships, and the impact that you and your team have on communities all across the province and even in places in the U.S. So I think it's a pretty well-rounded conversation to start with data, to end up with people. But I think that represents a lot of the work that you do is that it's, you know, when dealing with fire and wildfire resiliency, you have to take that approach, an integrated approach. And FireSmart kind of encompasses all of that of how do we get better as a community, as a province, and become more resilient. So Mike, it was an awesome conversation. I think people are really going to enjoy just hearing from you and your experience. Um, I said it earlier in the call, but I wanted to thank you again for just all the work that you and your team have done. And we are having you back for sure, because I think in our start of our conversation, you just rattle off everything you're working on. I think, I know I'd like to learn more about that. So consider this part one and we'll definitely have you back for part two. But any last comments as we close out, just messages for your team, for people listening, for anyone else's as we kind of close out? Yeah, no thanks, Andrew. Happy to come back and I just enjoyed the conversation. It's always nice to reflect a little bit. Don't get a lot of time to do that. So it's been a good good time for me as well. Um, I think in closing, you know, I, I'm looking out my window here in, in Port Hardy today. It's pretty sunny and warm, unseasonably so. You know, you can feel fire season coming. And so I just want to ask everybody to start thinking about that. Start thinking about what this means to you. What can you do to help yourself? What can you do to help us and others? How can you help your community to be more resilient to wildfire going forward? And then, of course, for my coworkers in BC wildfires, like get some rest. It's coming, you know, be ready. Keep working on your fitness and, uh, you know, just be safe and healthy out there this summer. Amazing. What a way to finish. Well, thanks, Mike, for your insights and your passion. We look forward to having you on again and sharing this episode with our listeners. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andrew. Thanks for all the great work that you do with the podcast as well. It's appreciated. Awesome.